One of the problems with um, teaching for as long as I have is you never know who you shared personal examples or stories with. And so sometimes you sit back and think, they probably heard this already. So I apologize if you've heard this already. When I was in high school, I met a young lady named Stacy. And uh, she was in my Spanish class with me. And uh, it wasn't a very good Spanish class, so there was a lot of time for doing other things. And so we would often do other things, talk and you know, chit-chat and goof around and stuff like that. And so I got to know Stacy, and we got to be fairly close friends. I'd see her a couple times a week, go hang out at her house, that type of stuff. We weren't dating or really anything like that. It was just more friendships, hanging out, that kind of stuff. But um, she was a, kind of a short little gal, a little bit awkward, a little bit quirky and, and stuff. And so we got along pretty well. And um, I just remember when I graduated, I we were both in the same class together, um, both seniors, and so we graduated, and I went off to the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, and she went off to Madison. The University of Madison is like OSU. Uh, It's one of the largest universities in the nation, extremely, extremely liberal. Um, In fact, the uh, Freedom from Religious Foundation is founded right there in Madison, Wisconsin. They had one of the first, um, uh, there's these rallies where they go and smoke pot on the Capitol Capital grounds, and that was, they were one of the first universities ever in the nation to do that, you know. So anyway, really liberal place. So I went off to Eau Claire, which is a little bit more conservative. I wouldn't say it was conservative, just let's just say more conservative. So I went off to Eau Claire, and um, she went off to Madison. And we kind of kept in touch, you know, kind of on and off throughout college, you know. Um, but I didn't see her a lot, so it was mostly just do letter writing and then occasional phone call type stuff. And I remember I came home for the summer, and I couldn't wait to go over and see Stacy. So I was home for the summer, and so we got a hold of each other, and I went over to her house, and we kind of got the chit-chatting and talking, expecting to pick up old friends, just pick up where we left off, you know. And I already began to notice that there was just something different. It was just felt a little more awkward, you know. We didn't seem to be agreeing on as much things as we used to, you know. And it, it just, you know, it sort of just didn't feel the same. You know, I'm like, man, whatever, what happened? We were so close, you know, we're just great friends, and now it's just a little bit strange and awkward. Well, at one point, she just kind of looked at me, and she said, you know what's weird? A lot of things that are weird, but yeah, what's weird? And she said, what's really weird is that we both grew up kind of in the same church. We're both Catholic. Um, We went to the same high school, same kind of family, same basic ideals and morals and all that kind of stuff, you know. And you went off to Eau Claire, and I went off to Madison. You became a Christian, and I became an atheist. Just like that. Just dropped it like that. I went, I know you're an atheist. She goes, yeah, an atheist. No, there's no such thing as a God. And so she kind of brought this topic up, and so we kind of started talking a little bit about it. I said, so, okay, why is there a problem with that? And she said, like, I just don't get you anymore. You know, you're this Christian guy now. And she started sharing these things she didn't like about me. Somehow I was now offensive to her. All because I had become a Christian. And I, you know, I wasn't, I think I'd only been a Christian for probably about four or five months. And so I think much of her evaluation and her determination of who I was really happened at that first meeting at her home because we didn't have much interaction prior to that. And so just within the first, you know, probably 30 minutes or an hour of us kind of hanging out together, she discovered a number of things that she found offensive in me. And again, I had only been saved for probably three or four months. I wasn't all that mature. 
But there was something that she found patently offensive about me. And to be real honest, that was pretty much about the end of our relationship. She had no interest in hanging out with me and didn't want to write back and forth or talk. So I don't know that I ever really saw her after that. I might have come across her at some of the graduation parties. I still had a lot of friends who were juniors after me, and I may have seen her at a party or two, but that was pretty much it. We were no longer friends after that. We're going to look at a passage today that's kind of related to that. Um, a life changed by Jesus Christ, is, it can be a powerful thing. On the one hand, it has the power to draw the unsaved to Christ, as it did me. Um, one of the things that drew me to Christ was the change in the life that I saw in the guy that led me to Christ. On the other hand, it has the power to offend and push people away, just like it did with Stacy. So a changed life in Christ is a powerful thing. Today we've come to probably the most famous passage in the book of Acts. It's the conversion of Saul. If you remember, Saul was out to persecute the church. And we come to this passage today and we're, we're surprised at what happens. Something unexpected. I'm going to use some alliteration again today, just so that Dustin has a good example for the future. Um... Break this down into four pieces as we look at Saul's conversion. The first thing I want to look at is the power that comes from a changed life. Second thing is going to be the problem that comes from a changed life. Third, the partnership that comes with a changed life. And then lastly, the proliferation that comes from changed lives. If that helps you to remember what we're doing this morning, great. If not, you can just ignore the P words. But um, let's go ahead and look at this. The power that comes from a changed life. Let's look at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 19, the second half of it. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. He's talking about Saul there. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus, but proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now remember last week we looked at the conversion of Saul. Saul was the great persecutor of the church. Much of the persecution was driven specifically by Saul outside of Jerusalem. And so we find here that after this conversion, Saul is still in Damascus. And he's fellowshipping with the disciples there. It's only been, we're told here in the text, several days, but immediately he began to proclaim Jesus. So almost from the moment that Saul was saved, he began to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ. I suspect one of the reasons why that's possible is because Paul was an Old Testament scholar. He had been trained by the best. He understood the Old Testament. I would imagine that as he came to Christ, all of a sudden the dominoes began to fall and he began to see how all of that fit together. In some respects, it was, you know, when I got saved, I had a Catholic background, so much of it made sense, but I by no means had ever really studied the Old or the New Testament. My knowledge was fairly limited. Paul, on the other hand, had a solid grasp of the Old Testament. And so it appears that he was able to take that knowledge and immediately begin to preach Jesus Christ. He began where he was familiar. He began, it says, in the synagogues, preaching to his fellow Jews. That makes sense as well. 
That was his culture. That's who he knew. The synagogues were the place that the teaching took place. That's where, in fact, in Jerusalem, that's where the Christians met, was at the synagogue. The heart of the message that Paul shared was, Jesus is the Son of God. That was his message. We find out later that he also preached the resurrection of Christ, and so his messages appear to focus on the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He happened to be the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Now, what's crazy about this is that it both amazed and it confounded the Jews. Now, it says that they were amazed, probably because he was the last man they expected to be preaching Jesus. Notice in verse 21 it says, Is not he, or is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? Notice it doesn't just say, you know, he debated with them or argued with them, but they knew this was the man who actually went after Christians and destroyed them. Paul had them arrested, he had them tried, and he had them put to death. And the Jews knew it. And so they were, they were amazed. He was the one, we're told here in, in verse 21, that he came to Damascus for a purpose. Notice it says, and he came here for the purpose of bringing them, these people that called on the name of Jesus, bound before the chief priests. It was shocking to them that this great protector of Judaism, this persecutor of Christians, who had come to their town specifically to hunt out and to find these Jesus people and drag them off to the chief priests and have them destroyed. And all of a sudden, this dude is now one of them. They're amazed. They're shocked. It's, it's befuddling to them to see that. They probably could never imagine such a thing. Also says that they were confounded. That's a little bit different. The Greek word translated as confounded is used in different ways in the New Testament. One of the ways it's used is kind of like the NIV translates it. That they were baffled. It's one thing to be amazed and shocked. It's another thing to be totally, completely confused. Not understanding what's going on. So they were bewildered, confused, or baffled. That's one way this word is used, and the NIV chooses to translate it that way. It's also used in another way. It refers to having anxiety or dismay. That's the way the New English translation translates it. It says this, it was causing consternation among the Jews. I think both of those probably are what are in mind here. Sometimes when a word is used, you can't just say it's only meaning this or it's only meaning this because there's nuances to that word and it's likely here that what Luke is, is trying to communicate by using this word is that they were, they were shocked and amazed and confused. They didn't know what to make of this. this. This makes no sense. How could this man, the great Saul, now be preaching Christ? It makes no sense. It's confusing. It's shocking. So they were amazed, they were confounded and confused. Luke tells us why that's the case. Look at verse 22. He kept increasing in strength and was proving that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, Saul was becoming more and more capable the more he preached. He was getting into his groove, if you will. He was getting better and better at proving to the Jews that Jesus was their lifelong awaited Messiah. I would imagine, like any preacher, any teacher, he got better as things went along. Now again, he's coming from a position where he had a solid understanding of the Old Testament. He was also familiar with rhetoric of the day. 
And so Luke simply tells us that these Jews were getting agitated, irritated, confused, confounded, because here's this man who they probably praised. They were probably thrilled was in their city hunting down these Christians. But now he's on their side, and he's really, really good at it. He's able to prove that Jesus is a Messiah, and there's, there's evidently people that are coming to Christ. It doesn't say that here specifically, but we see that throughout the book of Acts, that that's what God was doing. Jews were getting saved. And so Luke tells us that they were irritated by it, confused and shocked and amazed. So what's our takeaway from this? What we see here, I think, is the power of a life radically changed by Jesus Christ. That's the greatest witness Paul had here is the shock value in some respects of who Paul was or who Saul was and who Saul is now. What he used to do in persecuting the Christians and what he was now doing in praising Jesus Christ and preaching him. So one of the things that made Saul's preaching about Jesus so amazing and confusing to his fellow Jews was the fact of his radical conversion from persecutor of Christ to follower of Christ. That is a powerful, powerful testimony when people see that. Paul actually used this as his testimony on multiple occasions that we have recorded in the book of Acts. I would imagine he used it fairly frequently. You don't have to turn there, but Acts chapter 22, when he was standing before King Agrippa, talked about this. I was a persecutor. This is what I did. I killed these people. But now look at me, King Agrippa. I'm preaching about this man. That becomes a great tool to say, hey, if I, the great Saul, who was well-respected, are now telling you that I was wrong and Jesus is who he claimed to be, that's a powerful tool. And so he used that before King Agrippa. The second time we see in the book of Acts is when he was... I'm sorry, that was the first time. That was before the Jews when he was arrested in Jerusalem. The second time was before King Agrippa. And that's actually Acts chapter 26. And so he used it before the Jews. Remember who I was. Remember, remember I was Saul, the persecutor, but now look at me. So Paul relied on this radically changed life as part of his testimony, part of his preaching, because it's a powerful tool. What better witness than to see somebody like that changed radically? We know that. We probably all know people who were pretty messed up before coming to Christ or were radically different before coming to Christ. And now they're singing a very different tune and we can only attribute it to what Jesus Christ has done in their life. And that becomes a powerful testimony to the reality of the gospel. Because when there isn't any change, why is there any motivation to become like that person? Right? If you see a drug dealer or a druggie or somebody who's hooked on alcohol or is an abuse, any number of things... And they now say, well, I love Jesus. How motivating is that to become like them? Right? But when you see a person whose life is radically changed, that is a powerful testimony. That might be one reason why Jesus chose to save the Apostle Paul. There's probably many, but that might be one of them. The same thing is true of us. The work that Christ does in our lives is one of our greatest assets when it comes to preaching the gospel. Sometimes we don't have to say a word. It just stands out. I didn't say anything to Stacy. I didn't even tell her I was a believer. 
But there was something in our conversation that just, she knew there was something radically different. Now what's crazy, I could also tell in her that something had changed. (laughs) You know, we're told to always be willing to give an answer for what people see in us. Tell them it's Jesus, because people should see in us. There should be a distinct difference in how we live our lives, and how we think, and how we behave. One of the one of the disconcerting things as we went through all this COVID stuff, and all the last political season, was when I saw Christians behaving just like the world around us. I'm like, really? We're supposed to be different? And I even struggled with that. I get frustrated, you know? But we really ought to be different. The world ought to see something different in us. They ought to see Christ reflected in us. Why? Because that's the witness. You know, Kimberly shared a great example on how one of the girls that she knew from DACC, a girl that I asked her the other day, I said, how well did you know her? And Kimberly said, well, she's kind of an acquaintance, but in reaching out to Kimberly and now asking Kimberly if Kimberly would teach her to pray, I don't imagine my daughter, Kimberly, was there every day at class saying, I am a Christian, I can teach you to pray. It was likely something about Kimberly that she saw or heard. At work the other day, when when the issue of reading the Bible had come up by one of the other co-workers, and Bali looked at Kimberly and said, can you get me a Bible? Why? What, what prompted that? Did Kimberly say, oh, by the way, if anybody here is interested, I can get you a Bible. Just let me know. I'll pick it up. Just something. So who we are, the work that Christ does in our lives, can be one of our greatest tools. It's a powerful witnessing tool, and it certainly was for the Apostle Paul. Now with that, there's not only the power that comes from that, but there's also a problem that comes with the changed life in Christ. I remember years ago, there was a young woman that I worked with. She had gotten saved. She would come in and talk to Steve Schmeckel and I all the time, and we would share with her, and she would have Bible questions, and we would answer them and stuff. Well, she came in one day, and she had said her husband's leaving her. I said, why? And she said, because he didn't sign up for this. So we began to talk, and I asked her, I said, well, would he be interested in sitting down and talking to me, do you think? You know, she had two young kids at the time. And I knew her husband. I'd met him a few times, but I didn't know him real well. He would stop in at work and stuff. And I said, ask him if he'd be willing just to sit down and talk to me. And so he was willing. So we met for lunch one day. We sat down, and I, I just said, hey, look, I, I, I don't want to interfere here. I just, Steve and I both, we love your, your wife, Kathy. We're concerned. She's told us that you're planning on leaving. He said, yep. And I said, well, I want to talk to you about that. And um, in the conversation that we had, he basically said the reason he was leaving was because she had become a Christian. And he specifically said, I did not sign up for this. I don't like who she is now as a Christian. I want my old wife back. And part of that is because they had been doing some things as husband and wife that she felt uncomfortable doing. He still wanted to do some of those things. She said, I can't do those things in good conscience. Um, he wanted to be able to still do a lot of this. He felt convicted in some respects. But I still remember him looking right at me and saying, I didn't sign up for this. I did not marry a Christian. I do not want to be married to a Christian. I kind of sat down with him and I talked about the consequences of doing what he's doing and what it would do to his family and his kids and... He said, I don't care. 
I don't want to be married to a Christian. We see something similar here with Saul. Look at verses 23 through 25. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Luke simply says that these things happened after many days had elapsed, which is rather unspecific. However, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 1, these events take place about three years after he had gotten saved. So he had been in Damascus probably for about three years. In fact, there was a period of time where he went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. But in all likelihood, some time had elapsed here. That's why Luke describes it as many days. can describe anything. But about three years probably Paul had been preaching. It also down in verse 25 mentions Paul had some of his own disciples. Much probably like a church, meaning people that would listen to him teach on a regular basis. And so it had been time enough to, you know, had elapsed for that to happen. So probably again about three years later, these Jews had finally had enough of Saul. Um, Luke ties the desire of the Jews to kill Saul not just to his preaching about Jesus, but partly to their anxiety, their consternation. That's kind of what we learned a little bit ago. They were getting shocked, they were amazed, they were befuddled and confused by him. But again, remember that word can describe having this anxiety and frustration over something, not knowing how best to handle it. And so that really becomes the impetus for what they want to do. There's no evidence in the book of Acts at this point that the disciples there in um, Damascus had been persecuted by anybody, except for Saul coming. So meaning, the Jews in that city, it doesn't appear, had it in for the Christians. But they certainly had it in for Saul here, we see. There's no indication that the Jews in this passage plotted to kill the believers in Damascus. They were just happy that Saul had come to haul them away, but they weren't willing to do it themselves. But yet, they sought to kill Saul. Most likely because they were frustrated, angry, had been turned off by him. You know what's interesting? Um, probably one of the more offensive things at simply being a Christian is when one of your own converts to Christianity. Think about that for a minute. Christians can be offensive. But for some people, what's most offensive is when somebody close to them becomes a Christian. That individual becomes offensive where maybe they're not quite offended by all Christians because they don't have that relationship with them. But sometimes when it's one of your own, much like this young lady's husband, as far as she didn't know that he hated Christians, he probably didn't hate Christians. What he hated was his wife becoming a Christian. Think about this for a minute. Sometimes it's one of your own people. Think about in Muslim countries where becoming a Christian is... Permitted, unless you were born Muslim and converted to Christ. There are Muslim countries where it's fine to be a Christian, unless you were a Muslim who became a Christian, then they'll put you to death. Why? You're one of your own. It's offensive when a Muslim does it. Now there's some, obviously, Muslim countries where just being a Christian is wrong. In general, I'm speaking to those who permit Christianity, but don't permit it when it happens to be one of their own. What about one of your own family? I think about this young lady above. There's no indication that he hated Christians. He hated the fact that his wife had become one. It's offensive. 
one of his own, one of his own family. What about sometimes children when they get saved? They're raised in unsaved homes. Sometimes parents get irritated by that. You know, maybe they come home and they don't sit down with dad and have a beer, whatever it is. That's offensive. Why don't you do the things we used to do, son? Because, dad, I don't like doing those things. Or maybe political views change. I can't believe you're not a A, B, or C. Why not? How can you believe in that? Well, dad, because my views have changed. What about when it's your friends? You know, in the case of Stacy. You know? She was raised Catholic. She didn't have a thing against Christians, but for some reason, when I committed myself to Christ, she wasn't happy. In Paul's case, it was his own Jewish brethren. Think about this for a minute. Paul was probably well-liked. He was probably well-respected. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. Somebody people would have looked up to. Extremely educated. Educated by the best. It was likely that these same Jews, just three years earlier when Paul came to their city, were probably happy that Paul had come. They may have even pointed out, oh yeah, down, down the street, to the left, second door on the right, you'll find a Christian family there. They likely praised Saul for what he was doing. Probably appreciated it. But now, all of a sudden, they want to put him to death. Does that sound at all familiar to somebody else we know? Jesus going around Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The crowds praising him, loving to see him. But what happens on the day of his crucifixion? They're all screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Sometimes the most offensive thing for people is when people they know come to Christ and now it's a problem. So while it can be an extremely powerful thing that changed life in Christ, it can also be somewhat problematic. Just as it can draw people to Christ, it can also push people away. What's our takeaway? Well, the problem with a life that's been changed by Christ is that just as powerful it can be as a witnessing tool, it can be just as powerful in creating offense. Jesus himself said, they'll hate you because they hated me. He prepared them for that. For those of us who came to Christ in our teens or later in life, we may have had friends who didn't like us anymore. May have caused some tension. Family members, I mentioned to you before, a period where my brother had warned me to stop sharing the gospel with him. I don't think it was something I did on a regular basis. In fact, there's no email. We didn't call a lot. I I don't know that we wrote letters. But I got a letter from him one time telling me to shut my mouth. He wasn't interested anymore. Caused a little bit of tension there. For those of you that um, weren't raised in a Christian home, maybe you've seen some of that as you came to Christ with brothers or sisters or mom and dad. Maybe there's a little bit of tension there. Maybe some things you didn't expect. Those who were raised in a Christian home may not have experienced that same thing, but I know folks who were raised in Christian homes who have matured in Christ and even their maturity in Christ now has become a problem because maybe their family isn't quite as open to that because maybe the family is a little more nominal in how they view Christ. You may have neighbors or co-workers who can't stand you simply because of what or who we stand for. 
it's going to be much more challenging going forward, folks, because, you know, the whole diversity thing in the workplace. You know, if you don't carry the flag, you know, it's like that Seinfeld episode, you know. What's it with the, you're not wearing the ribbon? You're not wearing the ribbon? You know. Um, Our Christianity, our changed lives in Christ, could certainly become a problem. We've already seen instances of some businesses, Starbucks and others, who have strongly requested, could I say it, that their workers celebrate certain holidays and other things, if you will, even though it goes counter to their religious values. It's a problem. I don't like the fact that you won't celebrate this over here with us. And I think for a moment um, we'd be fools to think that in businesses like that, Christians won't be singled out. Meaning, if you've got two people, one who's not a Christian, who maybe hasn't said much in support or against, and a Christian who is just a Christian and maybe hasn't said much either, who do you think is going to get their finger pointed at them? We know who it is. It's just the way it works. They'll single out those Christians. So... These changed lives we have because of what Christ has done for us can be also or can also become a problem. But the thing we have to remember, the thing we have to keep in mind is that what some find offensive in us, others are drawn to, and it leads them to salvation in Christ. Think about what Paul wrote in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen, he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Essentially what Paul is saying is this changed life in Christ is a powerful witness. For some, it will be a sweet-smelling offering or a sweet-smelling aroma. It will draw people to Christ. But that same thing will stink to others, be offensive to them, and push them away. But either way, it's a powerful testimony. And we have to be okay with that. Sometimes I think as Christians, we spend way too much time thinking about ways to be liked and appreciated by those around us, instead of simply looking like Christ. That ought to be the goal. We can't control who's drawn to us and who's not. Now, I have to admit, you have to say, let the cross be the offense. We don't need to be offensive. <laughs> and to be real honest, I know some Christians that can be really offensive. Okay? But the reality of it is, our changed lives can be a powerful witness, but they can also be a powerful tool that sort of convicts people and pushes people away. Third thing that we come across here in this passage is the partnership that comes along with the changed life. And I like this. Um, Kind of reminds me that we're not alone. Look at verses, well, we'll get there in just a second, but verses 26 and 30. After being forced out of Damascus, Saul actually made his way back to Jerusalem at one point. According to Galatians chapter 1, he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter specifically. Paul wanted to go meet Peter. When he arrived, however, none of the Christians would associate with him. Look at verse 26 of our passage today. Paul says, when he came, or Luke says, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples there, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
So he gets to Jerusalem. He wants to go meet Peter. But he finds out that none of the believers want to associate with him. Well, can you blame him? What they remembered of Saul was that he was a great persecutor. Maybe he's back in Jerusalem now to arrest them. So it says that they're afraid. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. I can't imagine why, you know. This guy was responsible for putting Christians to death. He comes now and he says, I'm a believer too. I bet you this is a trap. You know, who wouldn't say that, you know? Um, That's the way spies work, you know? I doubt we had any Russian spies here that came in and announced, well, I'm from Russia, I'm a spy. No. And so they were afraid he wasn't able to associate with them, except for one man, Barnabas. This should not surprise us. Look at verse 27. It says, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so we have this man, Barnabas, we were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 4. He sold a tract of land and gave it to the church. We saw that his name actually means son of encouragement, so his actions here shouldn't actually surprise us. Um, While the others refused to associate with Paul out of fear, Luke tells us that Barnabas must have actually mustered up the courage to go talk to Paul because he learned all these details about Paul, and it sounds like he learned them specifically from Paul or Saul. It was apparently through Barnabas that Saul finally got his introduction to Peter, however. Luke says here in verse 27, if you look at that with me, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. So it says that Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles. Now, and again, Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes this. He reveals that he actually only saw Peter and James. He actually lived with Peter for about 15 days. Um, It's likely here that Luke is just using this phrase apostles to refer to them kind of collectively, that he went there, he met with Peter, met with James, who was also called an apostle, actually, elsewhere. Um, Luke actually refers to him as an apostle. And so it's likely here that what Luke is really describing is that Paul went to meet Peter specifically, met Peter, met James, hung out with them for, uh, for about 15 days, but really didn't see any of the other apostles. And now it's likely the other apostles were out doing much like Peter had done. Peter traveled, so did James, so did John. They went to other cities. So it's likely during that 15-day period that Saul did not have opportunity to spend time with the other, other apostles. However, something interesting does happen. If you look at verse 29, it says, that Saul was with them, moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, arguing with the Jews in the synagogues, and having his life threatened. So what we find is that Paul actually, or Saul actually, is now in Jerusalem, and he's hanging out with the disciples. So initially when he gets to the city, nobody wants to spend time with Saul. They're all afraid of Saul. But somehow, probably through the testimony of Barnabas, who then convinces Peter and James must have given their stamp of approval because now he's able to travel throughout Jerusalem here and continue to preach out and speak boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, the takeaway for us here, I think, comes from two words that we actually find in verse 28. Notice it says, and he was with them. Those two words, I think, are key. He was with 
them. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. He talks about partnership there. We don't have a partnership with darkness, but we do with those who are in the light. Prior to his conversion, prior to his changed life, Paul was an unbeliever. He was an outsider. He had no partnership with righteousness. He doesn't have any fellowship with God's people, at least not God's real people, if you will, at the time. Those who professed faith in Jesus Christ were part of God's family, but the Jews were still not part of God's family. So Paul had no partnership with them. But because of his faith in Christ, we're now told that he was bound together with believers as part of the body of Christ. He was with them, hanging out with them, partnering with them, ministering with them throughout Jerusalem. In fact, he was partners with the apostles and disciples of Jesus throughout this time. And this was all in spite of his murderous past. Look at verses 29 through 30. Again. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So, here's this guy who comes into this city. He's an outsider, if you will, who becomes an insider because of his changed life in Christ. He's now in partnership with them, so much so that the people he used to kill are now saving his life, are now rescuing him, taking him out of the city. Their, I'm going to say it outright, their hatred for Saul has turned now to fondness and care. Why? Because he's part of the body of Christ. There's a partnership that takes place there. The same is true of every one of us who have placed our faith and trust. Our lives have been radically changed by Jesus Christ. And we now have at least one thing in common. There's obviously more, but at least one thing in common. Partnership in the body of Christ. We've all been given the same marching orders by Christ. We we ultimately share the same goals, the same convictions. We might not agree on everything. But we're all part of the body of Christ. We're partners. We work together. We don't always act like it, but that's the reality of it. And so something else that comes from a changed life is this partnership. You know what? Nobody else in existence can claim that. I don't care if you're part of the Knights of Columbus or if you're part of some club over here or part of some group over here. There is nothing in this world that is like the body of Christ. In fact, even within a family, if you think, husband, wife, and children that are joined genetically, the body of Christ goes even beyond that because we are now spiritually members of the body of Christ and in partnership with one another. And Paul experienced that, something he ultimately had never had before. In fact, that's pretty clear because those people he thought were his family before are trying to put him to death. The people who weren't his family are now saving his life, rescuing him, caring for him. So the third thing we see in this passage is the partnership that comes from a radical life, or a life that's been radically changed by Christ. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the body of Christ. My closest relationships and friendships are those within the body of Christ. 
That's the way God designed it. The last thing I want to look at here is very brief. And it's the proliferation that comes from changed lives. Look at verse 31. Just a simple statement. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. You know, when our passage began, the church in Judea and Samaria was under assault. Saul was on a rampage. He was extending his campaign to wipe out the church from Jerusalem to the cities and towns outside of Jerusalem. If Paul had his way, Saul had his way, the church would have been wiped out, totally destroyed wherever he could find it, and he was on a a mission to do just that. What's interesting is God's solution to that was he took this greatest threat to the church and turned it into a tool to be used by him to build the church. Think about that, the irony in that. Just as Stephen's murder served as a catalyst to increase the persecution, Saul's conversion led to the rapid growth of the church. Think about this for a minute. It did so immediately because almost right away, God took this man who was trying to destroy the church and he took him out of commission in that role. Which means the persecution would have stopped almost instantaneously. There again is nothing in the text that suggests that there was any other persecution going on outside of Jerusalem in these areas except what Paul had instituted and begun. Now, we know that's going to change. But at this time, that's the bulk of the persecution against these people outside of Jerusalem. And we're told here in verse 31, the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. They were being built up. They were continuing to increase. Why? Because God took the person who was causing that stuff and said, all right, I'm going to flip the table here. I'm going to use this man to grow my church instead of destroy my church. Who does that? Obviously, God does it. And so this radical change in Paul's life led to the proliferation of the gospel, the increase. We know that because if you think about it, Saul immediately begins to preach right there in Damascus, which means people begin to get saved, which means the church grew in Damascus. Paul then, not too much longer, goes on these missionary journeys where he travels sometimes as much as 2,500 to 3,000 miles away to cities where they had never heard the gospel and establishes churches in every one of these places and we begin to see the church explode outside of Jerusalem all over the place. Why? The, the, the book of Acts focuses on, on Paul for a reason. If you think about any missionary in the history of the church, there is one that stands out as having probably the greatest impact on the church in history, and it wasn't Billy Graham. As much as Billy Graham has done, there was one man who stands out even far above Billy Graham, and it was the Apostle Paul took the gospel into places where it had never been heard before. Not only that, the dude wrote almost half our New Testament. Much of our theology comes from this amazing teacher. So he not only impacted people coming to Christ, but people growing in Christ. Paul put just as much attention on seeing people saved as he did seeing people mature and grow. Look look at the, the, the book of Ephesians 
where He calls eagerly on us to walk according to your calling. Because in Paul's heart and mind, it wasn't just enough to be saved, but to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to grow and to mature. That's kind of a neat gifting. Because oftentimes what you find is you've got a guy who's a gifted evangelist or a gifted teacher. One focuses on the unsaved, one focuses on the saved. And in Paul, we have it all wrapped up into one great glorious package. And so God took this, Christ took this changed life in the apostle and caused the church to grow as a result. You know what? The takeaway for us is this. The Lord has always used changed lives to grow his church. Think about that for a minute. Peter, James, John, the other apostles, radically changed their lives and they became the foundation of the church, right? The 120 who gathered in the upper room, they were changed lives. What about the 5,000 people that got saved at Pentecost and shortly after? Radical changed lives that caused the church to grow. What about people like Stephen or Philip or Saul? What about the millions of people throughout history over the last 2,000 years who have taken the gospel in, back home into their workplaces, out to mission? I mean, it's always been changed. That's what God does. That's what the church is. The church is just made up of a bunch of sinners whose lives have been radically changed and cause the church to continue to grow. I'm not an Apostle Paul, but I would like to think that my changed life has impacted people. It's given me opportunity to share the gospel. I've seen some come to Christ. I've seen some grow and mature. I've seen some that have... I've had the opportunity to witness and to teach and to you know help grow. I've seen them go off and do the same and see how God uses that to grow the church. That's really what it's about, folks. So our changed lives are a tool that God will use to grow his church because that's really what the church is. So I think about this. I look at this passage and we'll wrap it up with this. I think there's a reason why this, in some respects, is one of the most important passages in the book of Acts. Partly because it's going to lead to the evangelization of the Gentiles, but also because it really shows us how God sometimes works. And he works by changing us, radically changing our lives to represent him and who he is. It's that old man that goes away and becomes the new man, and then he uses that new man. There's, there's tremendous power in that new man as a witnessing tool. And yes, it will cause us sometimes some problems in pushing people away, but that's another tool that God can use to convict. And so we see how this changed life has this, this power to it. But that God can also use it to therefore grow the church. That's something we should embrace. It should also become a motivator for us, should it not? I mean, Earl Rodmacher used to say that the, one of the worst things that happens to Christians is they get, they get saved and stuck. <laughs> Which means they don't grow. There's no difference in them. It makes them ineffective in so many ways. And so if anything, it should serve as a motivator to us that we should want to see our lives changed by Christ. We should want to see ourselves continuing to growing and maturing and that there might be a distinct difference between us and those around us. We should want to know and to see and recognize that those people around me see that I'm different. 
But see that I'm different because of what Christ has done in my life. Amen?